Next on the Well of Sound, Kate Bush. seriously like oops what did we just step in i mean the love i think goes so deep and she is so revered and rightly so but man i i just i knew knew nothing yeah you like people still would would i'd always hear her talked about in hushed tones but and i knew the song running up that hill but basically uh the main exposure i'd had to kate bush was her duet with Peter Gabriel, the Don't Give Up song. Oh, sure. Right. Yeah. And I remember... That I knew, but I, it didn't like it didn't mean anything to me. It was never my, my favorite Peter Gabriel song. No, um, and I remember always thinking that the, the, her voice just was a little off kilter somehow, and, and it, I, I, could, I could sense there was an artiness there that I didn't really grasp when I was in mm-hmm. like, you know, it was Sledgehammer and then Don't Give Up, and, and I don't think I really... <laughs> understood i had no i mean just let's just face i had no idea until basically about six weeks ago what i was really dealing with here and it's it's taken all of my mental and aesthetic like faculties to at least come to a place where i feel like i can talk about yeah her as a as an artist yeah i mean it's been full immersion (laughs) Uh, and and the best part about it for me was starting with the first album, first track. I felt like I had a history with this person. It was sort of everything that I've ever wanted to hear in an instant and then song after song, especially with that first album, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is everything I love. And, and part of that, I know, I know why, because I I listened, I was a big Amos head in uh, high school. Uh. I listened to a lot of Tori Amos and uh, I also uh, love Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark. He makes friends easy, he's not like me. I watch for judgment anxiously. Nowhere in the city can that boy be waiting for a car. Climbing, climbing, climbing the hill. That's prologue for Kate Bush and afterward. When we were prepping for our Roxy Music episode, I remember one of the quotes that I kept I kept running across, it was sort of trotted out in every tribute to Roxy Music, is Kate Bush, a young Kate Bush, saying her favorite instrument on planet Earth is Brian Ferry's voice. Someone to open each and every door, but it ain't healing. Not 
Ah. And that, that was, she's, he's her favorite singer. And there's a lot of inspiration, go, different inspirations going yeah. into Kate Bush. And she's very much like her own, uh, completely almost out of the blue as well. But once you, if, if you, you can trace the line from Roxy to that, that the vocal inflections and the strange characters and the sort of left field, um, you know, elements that you think shouldn't work, but do that. Yeah. Combined with a lot of melody. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's cool is that a lot of the bands and the music we've been talking about across, you know, two plus seasons now is what she was listening to when she was a, a, a preteen and teenager. Bowie and Elton John in particular, you know, she cites as, as the, big, the big ones for her, but she comes from a family where music is, is all around, as has been the case with a lot of the people that we've talked about. My brothers also had this huge store of old singles that they'd collected, and that was brilliant because I could hear all these records that I'd never heard before that were, you know, hits from, you know, a few years back. And that was brilliant. All this wealth of material just sitting there that I wouldn't have heard otherwise. Every like um, description that she gives, as well as descriptions that are just other people give of her childhood, is of this like absolutely idyllic secret garden type um, British, like quintessentially British uh, upbringing. They lived at this place called East Wickham Farm, and she has two older brothers, Patty and Jay. And Jay's the poet, and Patty's the um, musician, really. And he's like obsessed with. He's obsessed with like medieval instruments and making his own instruments and playing right. playing fishing rods and stuff. And there's a strong sort of hippie component combined with like a, a they don't really say it. They spell it out as sort of like a she's accused a lot of, of being like a rich girl when she when she arrives on the scene. Um, yeah, because she, she went to what's in England known as a public school, which is a Catholic school. But um She's grown up with means and sort of insulated from the outside world a little bit right. outside of these brothers who are so important in her whole story. In fact, her whole family is. Uh, I was brought up in Kent, um, a very sort of normal upbringing. Um, I think the music, again, that I was hearing at a very early age um, influenced me tremendously because uh, before I was going to school, before I was reading... I was singing along to, to songs, to traditional music, and in a way I think that got my soul before the education even got near me. Mm. And I think really, when you are that young, in a way I think the sparks of what you really want to do are there somewhere. Um, and really all I did was uh, sing every day, because I was writing songs, I would sing them. Um, I was concentrating much more on my writing, and therefore my voice came through that. And every day I'd be at the piano for hours. She really credits her dad for, you know, while she's she's very prolific writing songs with <laughs> with like 30 verses oh. and, and she just pounds out these these songs on the on the piano or the violin, um, which are her, her main instruments and, and they're meandering and and but she really gives her father credit for always being an audience for her. And and that means so much that he would listen to every song to the end. So somehow when she's like 13, in 1975, uh, she, I think she's actually 15 at this point, but she starts writing songs when she's 11, 12, 13. And right. at, 
at around this time because her older brothers always have these like musician and museo type friends coming over and they're you know kathy as she's then known is playing songs and somehow uh they make a tape a really primitive tape of like 30 songs like a bunch of songs there was a friend of my brother's called ricky hopper who um was in the business and he knew a lot of people and he acted as a a friend to try and get the tapes across to people Um, and after some trying there was no response and he knew Dave Gilmore from the Pink Floyd right after Dark Side of the Moon post Dark Side of the Moon Pink Floyd which is different they're working on Wish You Were Here Wish You Were Here and he listens to these songs and he hears something but he also knows that like not a lot of people are going to be able to hear what he hears and he sort of helps steward this tape What's what's neat also about this section of the story to me is um, that Gilmore was really looking. He was sort of in this phase of, of looking for talent. Probably like 10 years ago, I found this, this band called Unicorn, um, which is, is sort of a, like a, a country folk rock band. Um, but Gilmore, I, I, I found out this like a year ago, Gilmore is basically responsible for, for breaking them before he discovers um, Kate Bush. But I kind of just I, I knew this was going to be our, our only opportunity to play a Unicorn song. I just want to say, for the record, I, I love Unicorn. I, I got all into those records during a Pink Floyd phase, and they're all good. <laughs> they're so good. I feel like the Jayhawks owes a lot to, to totally, Unicorn. Totally. Check this out. just such an american sound but it's it's done so well think, by them gilmore plays on a, of the first record like a bunch oh really yeah and i just can't get enough of his guitar sound i love it i love it but i had you know i but previous to this i didn't know that how involved gilmore was in the discovery here and he really considers right. her like not a protege because because she didn't, he didn't, she didn't really need his help that much. But kind of like he's one of these people that checks in, and you'll hear him on certain albums. Uh, um, but yeah, Gil, David Gilmore. And he put up the money for me to make a proper demo with arrangements and selected songs, and we took it to the company. And you were what age then? About sixteen? Yes. And, and this demo session is 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 crazy. Jeff Emmerich is the engineer on the the demos of the Beatles before they even get the contract um and then I lo- I just love this quote Gilmore says uh EMI sort of floating around the reps at EMI are floating around the studios when they're recording this these um, these three demos uh and he says and I said to them do you want to hear something I've got they said sure so we found another room and I played them the man with a child in his eyes and they said Yep, thank you. We'll have it. <laughs> I just love that. Well, this and the, the version that they record in 1975 is the one that makes it onto the record. And let, so we should we should play that song. Let me let me, let me give so a clip good. of that here. I hear him before I go to sleep and focus on the day that's been. I realize he's there when I turn the light on. 
and that's like a lot more straightforward than what she ends up with on uh in a lot of areas but it's this beautiful song and it's like a pretty fully formed sensibility it's like nerdy middle school girl world (laughs) you know dancing in a room twirling around dreaming of the man that's going to visit her in the night a very good morning to you monique what's your question um kate hello kate hello monique um, where do you get all those nice clothes when you sing? Do they put your real own clothes? No, I, I go and get them from shops. Uh, normally antique shops, because, like, older clothes are just generally more interesting, you know? But oh. I, I get them especially for the, the things I sing. I like your hair very much. Oh. Like the other girls <laughs> Thank you. Compliments flowing. Yeah. Thank you very much for the call, money. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's all that stuff. It's all that stuff just done on an extremely high level. And it's a, very... Incre- a crazy budget. A crazy budget. And but she, and she's yet to invent all of these wild voices that she comes up with. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned Joni Mitchell because she was, I think, resentful of being... Um, Joni Mitchell was like one of the only frames of references people would have. Right. Record labels would have. And she always talks in her early days and you know the 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 gender component's going to be a big running theme here because it's a big running theme for her and she says that like she she at the time didn't really relate to female music or made by women she always says i wanted to it it didn't put you up against the wall that's what she always says and so she wanted Hmm. her even though we just heard is a very sensitive like piano ballad she wanted her music to be kind of confrontational and she always talks about like um this hunter side, this like masculine side of her that, that yeah. creates songs. I try not to listen to female artists too much just because for me it would be too easy to relate with them. I mean, I, I love Joni Mitchell and whenever I hear her, it sends shivers at me, you know, but mm. I really try to listen to expansive music as well, just cover areas. She doesn't want to be Joni Mitchell. She wants to be like David Bowie. Um, yeah. She, she's interested in, in that. And she actually was at the final like Ziggy Stardust concert, I guess. And she said she just right. cried for days. She's definitely a fan at this this stage of of, of these romantic stories, of, of this wild interpretive art, this 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 uh, dance. I mean, it's it's important to bring up Lindsay Kemp in, in all of this as as well, who who helped Bowie uh, craft the movement uh, for Ziggy Stardust and um and becomes uh, and teaches Kate Bush as well in that period that you were talking about. And really, he started it all. He um, inspired me totally with the the idea of movement. Um, I'd never seen anything like it. He was totally brilliant, fantastic. He said so much, and didn't say anything. You know, <laughs> physically, he moved all the time without actually talking. And um, I started going to his classes, and it was a complete experience for me. And, and I just felt this was it, this was what I'd been looking for. So um, in order to be able to control my body, I went to other dance classes and eventually became more involved with the dance than mine, but really only because Lindsay wasn't around to teach anymore. So EMI uh, gives her a five-record deal, but it's sort of agreed with the family that they will... uh, have sort of an incubation period, right? Yeah. Where where she well, she's made to she goes about this safely. Um, I signed the contract, and there was just feelings that we weren't sure how to handle it. I mean, I myself felt that I was very young at that time, and not capable of handling the business. I didn't know anything about it, and I think they were also worried that I was 
too young and that they were looking on it as a long-term project and that they wanted to give me time. And uh, I just used the time. I wasn't told to go and do anything. And one of the, another one of the running themes and one of the reasons she gets accused of being sort of like, you know, privileged, you know, a daddy's girl or something is that she never needed the money at any point. Uh. And so she had the freedom not to tour. Uh, and this is like a very important theme, uh, which is also create, connotes to like creative freedom. But they were really concerned because she wasn't touring. She was just recording songs and writing songs. They're like, well, you've got to, we've got to figure out if you can actually perform. And so she forms the KT Bush Band. And she, she switches her name from Kat, Kathy to Kate, really. And they, they gig in pubs. And uh, she was just fantastic. We were doing James and the Cold Gun with dry ice and all that kind of stuff. It was very much an embryonic version of the stage show we did in 79, you know. And that's where I, I first met Kate. It was, it was back, way back in se- early 77 when we had that band together. You know, so who knows? Maybe yeah. at the same time, maybe Nick Lowe's floating around. And one of the things that cracked me up is that the, the selection of covers that they talk about... <laughs> It's yeah. it's always like it's honky tonk woman. woman, but then it's Marvin Gaye. I heard it through the grapevine, and then right. they do a cover of Nut Bush City Limits by uh, you know Tina Turner, which I think they try to call Kate Bush City Limits. <laughs> Get out of here! And it, they say it didn't quite work, but I thought to myself, we were we were made to uh, to do this episode. A church house, gin house, a schoolhouse, outhouse. On highway number nineteen. She does talk about. Um, she says, probably the best stage entrance I ever saw was Tina Turner. She was just fantastic the way she burst on the stage. She appeared at the top of the flight of stairs, shimmied the whole way down uh, these stairs, came straight to the front of the stage and went straight into the song. It was so exciting. Um, so clearly, like, T- Tina definitely has an influence. And I think also, you, you remember we talked about uh, uh, Tina's influences were all men as well because she has these these older brothers that are very protective of her but also omnipresent you know the the, yeah. in the emi they talk about in the, the book i've read about this now um they sort of are getting slightly these record executives are a little bit like who are these brothers get get them out of here like it's <laughs> but because they're not dealing with uh they're not dealing with some working class family where the kids have been cut loose or they're rebelling and they're trying to get away from the family kate is very much in her family and they form all these companies to protect her publishing and it's gone about yeah. in a very reasonable and methodical um, way smart way yes well it's a sort of coordinating process really um a company was formed uh, when it looked as though she was going to become popular. Uh, and there's the administration of that, basically. We use a solicitor and an accountant um, and other people in advisory capacities. So there's liaison between them as well. And the whole thing is really to structure it so that the final decision on anything becomes Kate's, which is tends to be unusual in, in the rock music, especially where somebody has suddenly become popular. Um, they usually then find that they've got a lot of hassles uh, with their record companies and so on, which weren't thought of you know, before they started to become popular, but it's been avoided in Kate's case. For her, she's also deciding this time whether she wants to be a dancer or a songwriter. Like, those are her two main passions, like modern dance. Not ballet, but like modern dance that Lindsay Kemp is sort of involved with. And did you know that 
<laughs> I only discovered this today. So Lindsay Kemp uh, has Shakespearean training and then starts his own uh, m- modern dance company, uh, which I think uh, has a big moment um, at the Edinburgh Fest in like 68 that kind of comes on the on the scene and, and becomes known. But he, I just found this out today and it was so exciting. He is the um, owner of the pub. He is Britt Eklund's father in um, The Wicker Man, 1973's The Wicker Man. Huh. Willow. Father. This is Sergeant Howie, a policeman from the mainland who will be spending the night with us. This is my daughter, Willow. Good evening. Show the sergeant to his room, would you? That is, wow. Well, he's who's this creepy character, and I was always like, who is that guy? And that's Lindsay. Well, Kemp. if you want to find any interviews with Lindsay Kemp, because he's interviewed in a couple of these Kate Bush documentaries, he's he's very uh, charismatic, and, and he's got a yeah. lot to say. But should, should we talk about that first record? I mean, it's um, yes. Again, it's it's fabulous, and the 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 song that hooked me uh, is the song that really hooked the world, and mm. it's uh, because. And I, we 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 were talking about this episode, and I was trying to get into the first record, and I liked it, but the the, the voice, and this was a lot of the, the voice. Her voice is so high pitched, and you wonder, looking back, is she doing it on purpose? Yes, I think she's writing in a different key, and she's trying to stretch her voice. But it's really up there, in a way that, like, when I uh, just say I talked to Lex's daughter about this, do you like Kate Bush? And she said to me, her only line was, "Her voice is way too high." <laughs> I always find I feel like a, a mouse confronted with a cobra because there's something hypnotic about it. It's very strange. Is the pitch of your voice there? Your natural comfortable singing pitch or do you deliberately heighten it to get the the effect of kathy this ghost-like effect yes i do i do deliberately heighten it just because it's what the song calls for um but it, it's comfortable wuthering heights appears which is the title of the emily bronte book that, that she's never read she's based it on watching the last 10 minutes of a, of a i love this a, a movie for a version for television yeah like a 67 yeah bbc version of wuthering heights and it's just like one image in her head of, of kathy at the window and she can't shake it and she she writes the song or she starts to write the song. She's like, oh, maybe I should read a little bit of the book. But she barely gets into the book. And she's like, I, I think I got it. I know what I want to write. She's Kate Bush writes songs about things. She's sometimes <laughs> she writes autobiographically, but that comes a little bit later. She'll write a song. She's that's pretty like, literal. It, it's she'll write a song about the characters in, in Wuthering Heights, you know, or she'll write yeah. a song about she just goes for da- it. the dancing and uh, moving and or she'll write a song, Strange Phenomenon, on the first record is basically about menstruation from like... Or the saxophone song. Or the saxophone song, which is sort of a, <laughs> a slight, you know, erotic fantasy about a saxophone player. <laughs> and there's a lot of sex dripping off of all of these songs and that's immediately yeah. like um, one of the things she's talked about is that this... Uh, She's she kind of has a a way of of capturing sensuality, but especially from female sensuality in a way that it was kind of fresh and new. Um, and this is like a pre Madonna kind of in your face thing. This is a much I don't know. It's um, arty. well, let's face it. What what I mean, she's she's like stunning on 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 top of it all, and, and you know, as part of this 
first album, as soon as she comes on the scene, I mean, she's she's basically like a, a they'll, they'll say it in interviews, she's a pinup girl. How did you deal with that? Um, I think what worried me was that it was going to stop people taking my music seriously. I, I've always found it very complimentary if people said that they find me attractive. And my worry is really that it would get in the way of my music. It's not that um, I find that so much of a problem as, as that people wouldn't accept my music, but I don't think that that has been a problem. I think um, people do seem to accept my music for its sake. And uh, does your sexuality have a role in your, in your music? Well, I think that's something I find very confusing because I think the essence of all art is sensuality and sexuality. I, I mean, I don't suppose I understand it fully, but I, I always tend to think that's something that's projected and that sensuality is really where art is at. It's a, a much more subtle form of expression. I mean, they're all male interviewers and they're all, they all kind of have a vibe responding to her like, Sure, honey. You know <laughs> they think it's a novelty but, thing. Uh, yes, and, and but the truth is, is that the longevity of her career, the more she, it, the farther and farther she goes, it's it's just undeniable, and she gets to prove it, which is so wonderful. But in these early, you know, years, it, it's she just doesn't get taken seriously. On. No, because she's a woman, because of the way she looks. And frankly, there's a couple photographs taken of her that are infamous um, in that, and the family was very upset about it because there's a very famous photographer who took these photos of her. And she's not she's not naked, but they're they are basically pinup photos. So the, the record company right. is presenting her this way. So, and and uh, it becomes like her image is everywhere. And they they say that there's a national dialogue about her breasts, like it's it's a it's uh-huh. become becomes a whole thing, and but then there's Wuthering Heights, which there's a she does she's doing videos from the beginning pre MTV, <laughs> and Wuthering Heights. Uh, we got to listen to this song, but the the video the very lo-fi videos of her doing these crazy dances. Again, they're bedroom dances. Like she'll even say. Um, that at this stage, even though she's studying with these these incredible dance instructors, she's like, I'm not a I'm, I'm not a dancer. She loves dancing, but she has enough humility to to respect actual dancers and the level of commitment that they have. And and she basically knows that she's kind of doing her own thing. Yeah, well, let, let, twirling. Let's, let's just imagine her twirling to this. amazing chorus but you can hear her do a little bit of like a Transylvanian <laughs> I mean again the parallels the parallels with Brian Ferry are, are in, incredible I mean I have the same feeling uh, hearing that song for the first time as I did hearing Roxy music stuff for the first time where you're like this is from outer space I've never I mean I can't imagine in 19 whatever 76 uh, nine, right? When that album comes out, they re- start recording in seventy. It comes out in seventy eight. You he- seventy eight. Okay, seventy eight. Yeah. Um, you hear that song and you're like, "What 
the hell is happening? <laughs> well, it didn't do so hot in America. It, it did. It was a number one single in in England. Just of course, just a lot of these songs. Now, this is a song with, a, with an amazing chorus and a hook that will be in your head for days, even though it's so weird. But you, um, you, uh, many of her songs, you look back and you're like, wait a second, that was a top ten single because mm-hmm. they are. It's it, I I kind of get I kind of get the single aspect. It has sort of a Eurovision quality to it right it's it's just such an oddball thing but and and it's so well produced and it it um it's so lush but you kind of feel like oh well there there can't be more of that (laughs) there's more of course there's more it's a pretty flawless record it's produced by a guy named andrew campbell who had uh and most of the people who play on it are the um i think it's the rhythm section from cockney rebel Yep. plays on it and some guys from alan parsons project and 10 cc yeah Al- andrew I mean, powell produces it and it does really well and it immediately puts her on a huge promo everyone wants a piece of kate bush very quickly right and it begins her sort of the cautionary tale of her first couple of years of her experience with both the press and with record labels um because before she knows it she's back in the studio to record, mm. and, you know, they say that she shows up to the album sessions for the Kick Inside, which is that first record, um, with 120 songs, and they have to weed right. through that. And so then they go back to those for the second album, which is called Lionheart, as and she writes a couple of new songs. But it's it's like it's like the next year. Right? Ha- it's it's also 1978. This is the second album on in 1978. I do feel that the second album suffered just a little because of me not having enough time in between to really write and um, produce new stuff and, and really uh, sort out the old stuff. And that one, I think the cover is actually shot by um, her brother Jay. It took me forever to understand what I was looking at with that cover. I, I, I couldn't, the, the perception was so hard on like Spotify, it's so tiny. I'm sure if you get a big album, you see it instantly, but she's basically in a, a lion costume. She's a girl in an attic <laughs> playing dress up. And they record on the French Riviera this go round. Yeah. And um, again, she, she's got this band that doesn't really make it onto the record very much. Uh, but they're, they're good guys that sort of are very devoted to her. Well, her brother, all, and Patty's I, on there a lot. Yeah. And, and Del Palmer is on there. Who's going to be sort of a mainstay through all this. And eventually they uh, become romantically uh, involved for for decades yeah he's the basically. he's a he's a bassist in the kt bush band that ends up becoming then the engineer and like her primary collaborator sounds like it's funny every description of dale palmer in the the book that i just read says uh he's very no nonsense and he curses a lot like, like he's got a he's got a foul mouth uh, but sounds, but absolutely devoted to Kate and her art. And a lot of these people come away saying, like, I've never worked with someone in that league. She's someone with such vision. It's very important to me to work with people who, um, ideally, I've worked with a long time. Um, there's many musicians, as well as people like Del, who uh, the more we work, the more it's just this sense of, you just know each other so well, you don't really have to communicate with words you know a lot of that's all been done years ago you've got all that out the way but she's still constrained she's not allowed to really follow her vision at this point she's under andrew powell again for this record right she's she's very much the talent she does not get to sort of lay her hands on 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 the board 
but she is she is a, a driving force. They they talk about um, now I forget his name, but it, basically Jeff Emmerich's protege is is the engineer on these two albums, and he talks about how thrilled she is to base. I mean, she has the best resources possible at her disposal. She's she's in the best studios, and she's just a kid in a candy store. That was the one thing I wanted to do. It meant everything to record an album was just like. God, you know, oh yeah, and to actually be doing it was fantastic, it was incredible, it was actually happening, it wasn't someone saying it would be happening, it was actually happening. So she, she, they put out, they, they, they record Lionheart, which she looks back on and she, she, she basically poo-poos the first two records because she doesn't feel she was able to do everything she wanted to on there, and she also feels guilty, I guess, um, that she didn't stick up for her band. Mm. And they use these session musicians, but you know the the very first song, Symphony in Blue, kills me. I mean, they were also covering some Steely Dan songs, I think, and you can hear a little hmm. Steely Dan vibe in Symphony in Blue. It meanders a little bit. This, this album, is, I, it, it doesn't hit me as it, <laughs> like the first album. What, does. What's your favorite song on on Lionheart? Though I mean, there's there's a clear favorite. It's Hammer Horror. <laughs> well, there's Wow is on there, which is a big hit. Yeah, the song's about. Really, the music business or the show business, uh, like the theatre and the stage, and saying how there are lots of people involved in it who try to rip you off, who are after money, and you hear about the actresses that sleep their way up to the top. And it's saying that although there's all these things going on on the outskirts, that you can't destroy the magic, and that's the wow, that's what. It's all about. It's got yeah. this chorus that is literally her saying, Wow, Interviewers say that she used to say the word wow and amazing like every other word. And uh, so it made sense that she had a song like that. But can we play Hammer Horror? Oh, Here's yeah. Hammer Horror. How many different I mean, voices is she doing there? She's like growling. It's, it's so she, great. I mean, she's working every angle of 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 theater with with this, um, and and that's what comes next is is a tour um, that 
tour of life. When she took the decision to go on tour, no one doubted how important it could prove to her career. Because most live artists make their mistakes either in private or before a very small audience. Tonight, here at the Liverpool Empire, Kate Bush starts at the top, before several thousand. She can't afford to fail. Being in the audience at the time was uh, kind of blew your mind. Yeah, because I mean, it's she's... theatrical in every every sense. There's all the movement work that she's been working on, plus the costumes. Um, I mean, they have to innovate uh, a microphone for her. Yeah, it's, apparently it's the first headset mic, but like for real that that you know now everyone wears who wants to dance, dance yeah. and sing. Like Kate Bush was the one. Right by the '80s, Madonna and Peter Gabriel are, are rocking the headset mic. Now but, everyone, but it's Kate but Bush. It Kate Bush. They yeah. had to make it out of like basically coat, you know, a coat hanger and a little antenna radio. Um, I remember thinking as I attended that gig that I hoped you wouldn't have a deep intake of breath because the microphone was only about an inch from your mouth. Did yes. you worry about that? Yes, I had to be very careful about um, well, not saying things that I shouldn't when I, was being, when I was turned on and everyone could hear me. And I also had to breathe quite quietly, otherwise, you know, there'd be this sort of really loud... <gasps> so I had to be very careful about um, the moments when I wasn't singing, yeah. Yes, if you watch the videos, they all say that the videos don't quite capture the magic of it. And I've heard it described as somewhat a little bit amdram is the, is the English word, so amateur amateur hmm. drama. Like it's um It has that vibe, yeah. You feel like it, you kind of are like this is a lot, but it's <laughs> it's not <laughs> Nick Lowe. Let's just say that. It's at this point it's like it's so fun it's, though. I mean, the my favorite thing about Cape Naff, Bush is Naff is the other word that people use to describe tour of life, but it's groundbreaking and it, it's it's not prog but it's like, it is. it's prop after prop after there's a huge egg on the stage there's a ramp and there's dancers and there's lots of like spinning pianos and it's all kind of low tech today i'm sure it would look a little silly but um you know what it reminds me of phantom of the paradise it reminds me of something that would be on this on stage in the paradise yes it's very ripe for parody and the paradise would be a perfect uh, place for, you know, for uh, uh, for our swan to put it on. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a female artist, and she was saying that she sort of was, was along with Bjork, she's sort of at the very height of the, the, the girls that really were trying to find their own voice artistically. And they just, she said there's just such a confidence about Kate Bush, but it's not a confidence of her trying to be someone else or trying to be a man. She said there, she's sort of a girly girl in certain ways and wearing the, totally. the tutus and all the, the outfits and never... Um, it's all play. It's, it's a lot of play. It's a lot of dress up. It's a lot of, it's very fanciful and whimsical. Um, but, and then there's also, but there's this, it, there's this sensuality that is, She's yeah. not innocent. I mean, she you get the she's no. childlike, but she's not innocent. And um I think that there's a co- I don't the confidence to me is off the charts when you think of how young she was. They, there's that this moment that you hear over and over again in um that interviewers bring up with her which is um choosing Wuthering Heights as a single for the first album. Uh and that they wanted James and the Cold Gun, which stands out on that album as as the most average song on the, on the album you're like oh I, I i that seems like a song that might come out by another artist in 1978 wuthering heights does not um and the fact that she pushed for it in a room full of record executives 
and and didn't let up speaks to what you're talking about. She talks about um, that it it basically becomes this. Um, there's sort of a stalemate where everybody has a different idea of what the single should be. Um, and she's holding the line for Wuthering Heights and then somebody just kind of pops their head in the room unrelated to the, the argument and says like, Kate, Wuthering Heights, fantastic song, gotta be the single. And it just tips everything <laughs> in her favor. So there's also course, this luck. Once I mean, that becomes a huge hit, then it's like, well, we'll trust Kate's instinct on this. Exactly, exactly. But there's a certain amount, I mean, no... We've talked about a lot of artists, like 20 plus artists, and none of them have had the path to fame like like this person has. No. You have to believe in yourself. You can't just accept what other people say all the time, otherwise you become them and not yourself. Do you ever worry that your confidence might go? It goes. Yes, it goes a lot. And you sit there and think, I shouldn't, you know, Oh, where's my purpose? I'm nothing. And, and then something will happen that will just make you see that you're just a tiny little thing just trying to do your best and that's all you can do, so that's cool. Are you ambitious? I think I must be. I don't think I want to be ambitious, but I must be to want to put up with all this to carry on. You're now just over 21. She continues to turn down all sorts of invitations. I've read that she was invited Based on their first two records, she was invited to open for Fleetwood Mac on the final leg of the Rumors tour in America, and she turned it down. <laughs> she said, "Like I don't want." She's like, "I don't want to do present my music in twenty minute slots of just the, the you know with three players on yeah. stage. This I want to do tour of life with like forty people." Um, and she basically she finishes tour of life. Uh, at the Hammersmith Odeon, I think is the last show. And it's kind of in her head that maybe she'll she'll do it again. She's exhausted. It makes her nervous to be in front of an, an audience. It's, it's not her safe place, but um, what she talks about with the live, even, even Tour of Life, which everybody says is sort of lush and, and madness and so much to watch, even that, she says, doesn't really fulfill uh, the vision for her. And, and kind of is why she doesn't want to do it again. And so she pushes further into the studio. Yeah, there's also, I think, a technician that dies at the end of that tour that rocks her to the bone. Because she's, you know, she's 19 or 20. And she's the reason that they're out on tour. And I'm sure there's a lot of complicated emotions related to that. But yeah, it sounds like Tour of Life was both, it got glowing reviews it pushes sort of live performance forward in a way that they said the only tour kind of like it beforehand. Like the Emerson Lake and Palmer, you know, had their funny like tanks and armadillos. But but they said the only where, where the actual singers acting out all the songs, the, the Diamond Dogs tour is the closest that it had come to that. So Bowie is there in the mix, but it takes too much out of her. And, and she doesn't want to... Um, the studio is what's beckoning to her. I hadn't really stopped since it had started. And I think really over these years of being in the studio and being quite reclusive in some ways, I've gained a lot of my strength back that I did lose. And that's very important for me to keep my creative energy intact. And I think in many ways retreating like I have has helped me to be taken more seriously as an artist. And... Um, that's good for me because that's what I've wanted. I've wanted to sort of quietly get on with my work. So she gets a chance to co-produce on the next album, 
on Never Forever. They start recording. I mean, they're still drawing from some of the, some of the older songs, but she she this is the time she really starts writing a couple of uh, new tunes. And I mean, uh, this is called the the album is called Never Forever, and it's the one with the cover of the that has this sort of almost like. Uh, pre-Raphaelite, you know, um, illustration that's what today would be considered twee, but for then it didn't even exist. She's the first person doing it, but all of these creatures flowing out from underneath her dress. It's very suggestive, but also an incredibly cool uh, cover. That um, It's amazing, and it's illustrated by uh, a guy um, who did children's books and and i think advertisements what? uh nick price is she said name. she says in an interview she said it was very important to get it right so that it didn't look like it was an enormous fart <laughs> that's what she said she said it's all coming from under my dress so it can't look like a fart <laughs> i just thought that's so funny that's so that's the wonderful thing about her is you know there's so much comedy in every in all of this and yet she plays it straight so it's you can actually enjoy the humor of it all while indulging in the emotion and and uh and be transported to the the places that she's taking you and yet at the same time you're sort of laughing inside. well i think the one the song that makes me laugh just thinking about it is the first song on the record i'm gonna play it it's called uh, it's apparently it's a huge on tiktok now it's called babushka she sent him scented lotus, and he received them with a strange delight. Just like his wife, but how she was before the tears. And how she was before the years flew by. And how she was when she was It's basically the pina colada song. It, the, the t- it's, a, it's a story of a woman dressing up as her younger self and trying to like, fooling her husband into like falling for her. And then when he sort of does, she's kind of sad or something. I forget. I don't quite. And yet the video is not reflective of that uh, Can at we talk all. about it's, the video for a, a second? Oh, my God. The video is a, she's really into blowing your mind. I will give her that. It's so wonderful. particular video. She dresses up as like uh, Xena the warrior princess or Red, Red Sonia, you might say. Yeah, exactly. She looks like something out of Conan. Let's just put it this way. She's wearing a chain mail bikini and <laughs> with like enormous... Well, not at first. At first, she's wearing this uh, very muted like widow's dress and she's like dancing with a uh, a, a, a stand-up bass or something. Yes. And then it... And then suddenly, ba-boom. <laughs> Babushka. There's comedy. It sounds like music hall. It's comedy. You know, to, this is one thing I, I wanted to say about her songwriting is like... None of the songs sound alike. They're they're very different. No. She's not and I think that you when you hear the descriptions of the producers and the musicians, they're saying their time signatures are strange. Uh her uh her her <laughs> there's never verse, chorus, verse. I mean, there's often a chorus like Babushka, but these things go they undulate, they go up and down, there's all these dynamics and you know, there's a it's the the way that they describe it is it is a sort of a feminine sensibility and that these these the melodies wander all the way up like octaves higher and then down and they're they're, they're complicated songs well i suppose i don't really want an image i just feel that whenever i perform anything 
which is really where the image comes from. It, it, images do seem to be physical. Um, you don't often get an image from someone's music. You get an image of them as a person. And for me, I'd, I'd like that to keep changing because I don't think I have an image. I just try to project what's ever happening in the song at that moment. And every song is different. And that's how I would like to be. I would like to be different with every song rather than the same old thing. She, so she hears about something and then she like yeah. wants to write a story about it. Uh, like The Wedding List is on there, which is inspired by The the Bride Wore Black, which is an awesome movie. Yeah, you think way. it's going to be The Wedding um, List. Oh, this is her sort of romantic song. It's It's about a woman who's husband gets killed on their honeymoon and she takes revenge and it's and i guess like the they did it on the tour of life they did a big version of the wedding list i think it was like the, the finale not weathering heights it was the finale and she like shoots a bunch of her dancers dead at the end and it's like that was the end because she's got a fascination with guns not violence she's very much a vegetarian but she loves like guns you know the, aesthetically that's what she said she said i'll put him on the I'm one of the television generation, you know, where uh, a television was in my house from... I, I can't remember when there wasn't one here. And I was always in front of the television instead of doing my homework. I wasn't off reading books, I was watching television. And cinema, that's still a very big treat for me to go and see a film. So all the stimulus comes washing in and I pack it away at the back and it will come out um, maybe a couple of years later. But another thing happens... Uh around this time that's that's pretty important and that is uh she helps out on peter gabriel's third album and uh we (laughs) we give prog rock a lot of shit so far um but you know i was really i i i've always been a fan of these these first four peter gabriel albums in particular and 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 fripp um everything that these guys uh sort of crack in this post-prog period of like 77 through 85 i mean it sets the stage for major things happening in mainstream pop i mean the 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 ripple on effect is is awesome um and uh and one of those things is the fairlight uh cmi yes the fairlight synthesizer which gabriel is like owns a company that has the only three of these. They're Australian keyboards that you can sample. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's a digital audio workstation and a sampler. And Kate Bush is there uh, recording vocals on Games Without Frontiers, No Self-Control. Night after night I walk on through the rain I walk on through the rain 
I mean, it's it's such rich, layered sound. But anyway, Kate gets a taste of, of what this machine can do, and it sort of lights her brain on fire. Has that changed the way you uh, approach creating music? Yes, very much so. I think it was uh, one of the best things to happen for me alongside uh, rhythm machines. Um, not only has it helped with the initial writing process, where I'm getting associations of the sound straight away as I start writing the song, but also from an arrangement point of view, where if I want strings or brass on a track, I can work out an arrangement on the Fairlight with that particular sample sound. And then if I won't get the um, real musicians in to redo it. Yeah. Well, your use of it's become more and more extensive, but you were, I think, one of the first artists that I ever knew, along with perhaps Peter Gabriel, who used the Fairlight at all. I was very lucky in that I was at the studio where they decided to demonstrate the machine at a very early stage. It had only been in the country for one. They were just setting up the company. And um, as soon as I saw it, I knew that, that I had to have one. It was going to become a very important part of my work. Peter Gabriel's the first one to 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 buy one and he puts it to use on on this album boz burrell from bad company is the second guy is that a fact uh, who buys one yeah and hans zimmer hires that uh uh fairlight for his work and then in the u.s herbie hancock is the next person then stevie wonder and then it gets to a point by 1985 i this was a, a great quote from uh wikipedia uh, the ubiquity of the Fairlight was such that Phil Collins stated on No Jacket Required, there is no Fairlight on this record. <laughs> well, one of the other things she gets from uh, Gabriel, who she has feels a very close kinship with, by the way, not just the artiness, because if you look at the some of those early Genesis tours, you can see some uh, some tour of life stuff in there. But um, yeah, he, he was totally. his, he views his songs sort of you know as little short stories and very as very arty. But she said that they work very similarly. Um, but he, the, also mm. the drum sound. The enormous drum sound that Hugh Padham, I guess, the, who ended up producing The Police, uh, which was the gated drum sound that also, you know, it, it, some in the air tonight, Phil Collins, the great solo, that yeah. enormous drum sound, she heard it and wanted it. And it was right. recorded in like a stone room with these with this effect, the, the gated effect that basically Hugh Padham came up with that then became, was everywhere by 1982, but this is 1980. And so she brings some of this back into, they, they say Never Forever is the record that's sort of like, it's the transition record. I think it started to happen on the third album, but it was really only in a couple of tracks. And I think um, things like Breathing, Army Dreamers, The Infant Kiss, they were in a way, starting on that same route. And I think that's the sort of material, really, that um, I wanted to try and get to. And um, on the last album, um, it was definitely sort of reaching a point where I was feeling pleased with my work artistically. One of the great quotes uh, about her studio technique is that her first two records were about what you could capture in the studio, mm -hmm. the sound of the instruments playing together, and then what she became much more interested in is what you could construct. She was not actually very interested in what you could capture, like getting a great band together and letting them play. I have a level of dissatisfaction around everything I do, really. I don't think I'd want to keep doing it if I didn't. It's, in a way, it's the, the desire to try and actually do something that you're pleased with, that uh, keeps you motivated. Do you mean that you are never totally satisfied with your work? No, I don't think so, no. Do you approach a level of satisfaction? Yes, yes, otherwise I don't think 
She got obsessive. It clearly tapped into something very deep in her, and she was also very, very good at it. But she wanted to, she would have people play the same, uh, you know, part 300 times because she wanted the perfect bend in the note. And she, she, her vocals, she would construct from, you know, 80 different takes and stuff like that. So she would construct these things. And, it, and one of the great songs, my favorite song on Never Forever, uh, is the mm. final song, which is called Breathing. And it is, it's when you think of like, what would Pink Floyd sound like? Because she loved The Wall, which had just come out. Uh, what would Pink right. Floyd sound like if it had had a more feminine sensibility and kind of a slightly more, um, I don't know, a bonkers a vocal styling? And you have breathing, which has a lot of those sound effects, and it has the grandeur. And it's about, of course, it's about, uh, when I say a feminine sensibility, it's about a baby wanting to be born because it's lived before, but also seeing that there's a nuclear holocaust that's just happening, and like afraid of the radiation getting in, but wanting to keep breathing and be born. So it's a song about it. It's very... The video is so it bizarre is, and wonderful. It's like she's, she's basically a, a, a girl in a bubble. Gosh, the video sort of. Like, <laughs> yeah, and at the end, these they're these robed figures that get electrified, and then um, and then they're by the end they're all kind of high fiving. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to say because the end of breathing becomes this incredible crescendo of like massive, massive choral words, but. Her singing on that song is just so great, but so this record comes out and it's it's well loved because Babushka is a big single, and yeah. the critics think that like Breathing and Army Dreamers are are great songs and that she's really pushing the envelope. But it no longer sounds like a band in a room with a strange vocalist. It sounds like something's going on sonically. The growth that happens here is is immense and i think she also kind of figures out a, a, an, an artistic approach um that she talks about that the an album is about discovery and the lessons learned are not applied to that album they're applied to the next huh. album um so that is what we're about to see um in 1982 with the dreaming and i also wanted to sort of touch back uh to one of her idols in 80 because she's working on the dreaming in 81 um scary monsters comes uh, yeah. out it's so easy that when you find a formula of how to write a song you stick to it and there's so many people that have fallen into the trap of they get a formula of a minor gc and from there on every song will be a minor gc because they know it works but i feel good artists people like bowie uh, Cliff Richard, you know, the real biggies, they keep moving. And that's the, the important thing about, I think, art, that you don't remain stagnant. I mean, Bowie is 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 really creating a, a, uh, a complicated uh, world and atmosphere with Scary Monsters. Um, and I'm sure that plays a, at least a... a a, a tiny well, bit you of know a that part she, in, in shaping she, the dream. She, uh, Tony Visconti, who who produced those records, oh. he wrote to Kate Bush a fan letter because he liked Never Forever so much and asked if he could produce the next one. And they set up a meeting to, to, to do it. And then she basically realized that she wanted to produce herself. And um, he said it's the, the sweetest uh, 
um, you know, rejection I've ever received. But it was he would have been the one. She's like, if I had chosen a, an outside producer, it would be you. But um, she decides mm. to go into the dreaming with her fair light, and and she instead of and into the into country, the country, and yet she wants to compose. She wants the rhythm thing much stronger on this record. So she instead of composing around piano, she composes around rhythmic tracks. And so that's why when you listen to, I mean, let's just listen to the, the first fruit of her labor that comes out in 1981, a year before the record, is the song um, Sat in Your Lap, which I still can't quite figure out what it's about, but it's pretty awesome. I see the people working, and see it working for them, and so I went to dreaming, but then I find it calls this her her she's gone mad record and you can understand like she apparently she dictated that there'd be no hi-hats whatsoever used in the making of this record <laughs> yes I, I think it, it was a very complicated single in many ways it was demanding as much from the audience as anything that you know they would pr- give the time to listen to it and try to understand it um, so many people said to me that by the fifth sixth time that they'd heard the song that they were actually starting to really like it and before then, they just hadn't understood it at all. Everyone who talks to you about the dreaming says that is a very difficult record to get into. Yet I found from the benefit of 2020 to listen to it is yeah. to it's not that difficult, but it's just, no. frankly, it's amazing. It is. Um, I don't want to skip too too far ahead because there's other great songs that that we can talk about um, here on that album. But the reaction to it. <laughs> You know, it really sort of separates the men from the boys. I, well, I think. she does you not want to be. She's she feels like she's been typecast as something and as a sort of a, um, a petite, you know, pretty girl ingenue, and wants to um, really put the art front and center. I do still enjoy being a male fantasy. Um, well, I'm not sure if I've ever really enjoyed it. Um, horrible question. Yes, it is. It's a horrible yes. question. Mm-hmm. Do another. Do one. you enjoy being a male fantasy? I love friend? it. <laughs> And so do I, so there we are. No. The fact that she releases The Dreaming as the, the first single from Once the Record's Ready, and you listen to that song, and it's like she's doing a mock Australian accent. It's about Aborigine politics, and it's like an Irish jig, and it, it in no universe, I mean, even, even with those, some of this stuff, I still can't get over the fact that it was that Wuthering Heights was that big of a hit. It, it, there's no way the dreaming's ever gonna be a hit like that song. It's sonically these things are so dense, and you find out later that she's got a huge following in the hip hop community. Big Boy of Outcast is like he excites her as his favorite artist of all time, and like he went to England one time for two months to try to find her. Tu- Tupac Shakur was apparently an enormous fan. She gets sampled all the time. Um, and a lot of it's because of this record, which is claustrophobic and sounds like it's kitchen sink, you know, which I always love these records where they just couldn't stop working. Like, she spent two years. It was very frustrating. Um, and she she is a person that, that knows what she wants when she hears it, but is feeling through it for all the time. And so she feels like it takes a long time um, to, for her to get what she exactly what she wants. The thing about arrangements is that although you can actually control the arrangements at the ultimately so much of it is to do with what the musicians are giving you and often session musicians will not be shown what the song's about they just come in and they play G D minor A 
and they go away. And what I wanted was I wanted to get them emotionally involved. I think it's very important because music is emotion, it's feeling, it's flying, it's spirit. And what they did was they allowed me to give them the song with the lyrics, with all the thoughts that had gone into writing it. And uh, I think the end product has really benefited from them putting their feelings in as well as their very good technique. It, it's the right time for her to start to invest in the visuals and, and the video aspect of things as, as well. I mean, there's a huge leap forward, not only in the sound with the fair light, but also, um, you know, MTV is right around the corner and, and she's ready. She is ready for it. I mean, the dreaming is, is this surrealist. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like Dune meets uh, the thriller it's video. Strange. She directed it herself. It really is a lot of fun, actually. For me, it's almost like making a film, and uh, I think of it as something very special. But on this record, pull out the pin, which has uh, David Gilmore singing the chorus with her. It's about uh, a Vietnamese soldier, I think a Viet Cong soldier, tracking an American because she could he could smell the West. Like and so tracking an American by sense of smell, something she'd heard about in some documentary somewhere, and it's all about yeah. All it needs, all she needs, is like a little bit, a, a line, or just sort of uh, the smallest idea or the smallest detail, and she's yeah, off they're, running. They're, they're, right. That's why she didn't read all of Wuthering Heights. She was like, I got enough. I think to do there my goes thing. a tenor, which was a single again. You listen to, she's like, it's oh, about like a drug, or it's like it's basically the it's Italian like a robbery job. gone wrong. It's a, it's a bank robbery <laughs> gone wrong. Yeah, and then get out of my house is. Uh, the Shining mixed with an, an Alien. She'd seen both of those and wanted to write a song called Get Out of My House. And that is the one... Okay, she... I got You want to play I, that can one? Can I read you a quote <laughs> about this? Uh, okay, I'll read... I'm going to yeah. play the end of Get Out of My House, okay? Just the end of Get Out of My House. <laughs> Okay, so this is, they turn it into EMI. She's worked her ass off on it. And not only did the first single feature Rolf Harris on Didgeridoo, who's like a novelty act, and Percy Edwards pretending to be a sheep, but the album ended with a cacophony of braying donkeys. I think it got to the point of the nearest album we ever returned to the artist, says Brian Southall of EMI. And in fact, oh, there's wow. lengthy yee-haw, yee-haw, and Kate <laughs> doing it as well as like her engineer doing these, these animal sounds at the end, which is like, it's a song about... She's getting into Scott Walker it's territory. It's strange, and um, you can understand why it's a cult record, but it's, it's a vision. Oh my gosh, nothing else sounds like it. Really, what made the big difference to me was becoming involved in the production, taking over the production. Then I had control of every area of the song. And there's no doubt that production has a big effect on a song. It can um, ruin a good song. It can make not a very good song really quite good. So uh, I think from a writing point of view, the more control you have over that whole area, hopefully the more direct your expression is, it's the more how you want it to be uh, at the end result. You won't be surprised to know that Bjork is a big fan of like, the Dreaming. You find a lot of people that are really fans of the Dreaming, and um, it does not do well. It it like it opens at number three, but it sells like sixty thousand copies in the last. This is the time when you could sell a million copies in England, you know, and she had sold that many, and so it'd been a pretty steady decline. So much so 
that when Live Aid and Band Aid happen in '84, she's not she's not okay. even she's not asked to perform, and she says she would have oh, performed wow. in Wembley. Um, had she been asked, but her star had fallen. They basically thought she was, she was just, she was way too far ahead of the pack in a lot of ways. Yeah, and also the the we talked about this with uh, Roxy Music and and Brian Ferry. The, the British press decide to kind of turn on her and make up stories about her like gaining two hundred pounds Pregnancy. and like being a total yeah. All there this is stuff there is definitely just to some shit like on her sexism mixed in with this. Yes, I think the last album was quite an intense album. I think it was about emotion and there were a lot of things that I wanted to say that I wasn't happy with. I was feeling mankind to be cruel, negative and I think I expressed that in a lot of the songs. With this album, there was a completely different energy. I moved from the city to the country. I was surrounded by elemental forces, which I really feel feature on this album. And I was feeling really happy and positive and considering mankind to be much better than on the last album. So I think it, it's got a more positive energy. Hello, lady. Well, Hounds of Love is the next record, and you can hear it's like a synthesis of everything she's done. It's like it's all fair. It's still a lot of Fairlight, and it's still a lot of big drums, percussive tracks. But she decides she needs to also, you know, not be anti-commercial, shall we say? Yeah. And she re- also decides to not record it in studios. She builds her own studio at Wickham Farm, where she and Dell sort of make their own studio. And they start this process, and it just is like, it's. It, she says it's the smoothest, happiest time of her whole life. Uh, it was really good, and it's very important to me that, um, that I trust the people that I work with. And, and I feel very comfortable, for instance, working with Dell. A lot of what I do is, it is quite personal, and in some ways I'm quite a shy performer about uh, trying ideas out. And um, I feel very comfortable working with Dell in a way that I don't think there's there's not many people I would feel that way with. So it's very important to me to have that kind of uh, um, trust in, in such a, an intimate situation, because most of the time it's either just myself or, or Dell and myself and the musicians are brought in at stages. Being out in the country, he's engineering. It's the sweet spot. And every... the, the So she decides to make the record so it's got like five commercial songs on one side and then on the second side it's the it's a suite called The Ninth Wave. And both... All of it works um, basically... Perfectly. It's a perfect record. I'll just say that. I think um, it starts with Running Up That Hill which she does a video for which she considers to be her greatest dancing of all time. There's a change that happens. If we talk about, you know, the sort of um, uh, uh, bedroom dancing that's 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 happening before this is professional dance troupe dancing that she does in the video of Running Up That Hill. And in some ways it was sort of saying goodbye to that dancing side of me um, by doing it, you know, in a very sort of 
pure way. It's very much a pure dance video without any theatre or anything attached. And because um, I, I feel very much a shift now from dance into film imagery. She it's says that she had, she had spent those two years making the dreaming, just eating like Chinese takeout in studios uh -huh. and working 15 hour days. And so it was really important to her to get back into dancing shape and like to dance. That was, that was how she sort of recuperated from that um, experience. Yeah. But then you get to running up that hill, that, um, video is amazing i mean this is you, you'll you'll recognize you'll you'll running up that hill was a huge hit in clubs now the singer songwriter producer is enjoying her biggest american success with the single racing up that hill and it's off the album hounds of hounds of love love it's you Amazing song, and the song is is about her wanting to basically. Uh, the, it's it, a lot of her songs are the gap between men and women and how they can understand each other, and this is her wanting to feel exactly what her her partner feels. Um, and she it's talking about if she could if she could be God that she would be transported into her lover's body so she could feel what he feels when they're basically making love. Um, but the song itself works on every conceivable level. It's still weird. It's still only Kate Bush, but it's commercial. And that riff and the Fairlight and the drums and the... But there's an airiness to it where there was like a claustrophobia to the dreaming. There's a... Um, these songs are made... Get you dancing. Oh, I mean, the, the side A is it, it rightly so um, just sort of hit after hit as far as just a satisfying song hounds of love comes next in the trees it's coming got the backup vocals of the dogs barking the ow, 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 ow. I didn't realize that's what that was supposed to be until like yeah. I read some interview with her but the it's melody an improvement is on the donkeys what it's an improvement on the donkeys yeah she's like the donkeys was a little was one step too far <laughs> I'll go to I'll stick with the dogs I think a lot of people uh, made fun of the donkeys um, oh really you know I gotta say um, I love uh, suspended and gaffa off the dreaming that um, there's a moment in suspended and gaffa that is you know as as sort of obtuse and harsh as that album is yeah. um there's there's some soaring moments and and that song in particular has has one
she's also she looks like Gozer from Ghostbusters in uh, you know at the end of Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess she does. She's amazing. But again, the comedy thing shines through. She does this uh, the the song "Cloud Busting," which is about she reads a book about William Reich, uh, written by his son, a man who is a psychoanalyst who said that he was he's, he's always dabbling in by the way occultism and mysticism and of all sort of strains from uh, sufi islam to roman catholicism to just uh, straight up a- angel and demonology to she uh, likes ghosts and goblins go- she too. likes all I mean. of it and and she's and she's she's kind of serious about everything but she's also got a smile on her face so yeah. cloud busting is about this she decides to write a song about this man <laughs> who moved to Maine and created a machine that he thought could make clouds and make it rain. Yeah. And then she makes a video of it where she plays the son and Donald Sutherland plays the father. And she Because she's a big fan of Don't Look Now. Don't Look Now, but she also loves Monty Python. So yep. Terry Gilliam helps with the concept. And if you look at the machine that they put in the video, it's like straight out of Brazil. Yeah, yeah totally. And and then, like the whole video happens, she's and, like, basically straight out of Brazil. She's straight out of Brazil, but the song is great, and it's oh, that it's song so good. And that's driven by cellos. I mean, like half of these songs yeah. don't have guitars on them, and yet they're like bangers, you know? Totally. Uh, so I love cloud bursting. I love that she's on the, uh, the she's on the old gray whistle test. <laughs> They play the video for cloud busting, and at at the end, when it comes back to studio, and she's sitting there, they're like, "That was uh, that was Donald Sutherland. How how did you get Donald Sutherland? He's one of the greatest actors in the world, really. And um, we jokingly thought, yeah, you know, Donald would be great. So we did actually approach his agent, who um, immediately said no, he couldn't because he's just too busy. But a friend of ours knew a friend of his who asked him and um, he gave us three days of his time in between shooting two other films. And um, I still can't believe he did it. It was a wonderful thing for him to do, give us that time. Made it a very, very special thing for me. One of my favorite groups is uh, Suede. I think I've talked about them before. The yeah. Britpop, that's that's a doesn't begin to describe them. But Brett Anderson has always described the Ninth Wave as one of his great influences. And I've finally gotten my head around the Ninth Wave, which is a, a very loose concept about a woman who's drowning at sea. But or at least her, she's at sea alone in the night and kind of having all these nightmarish visions. And then she's up in the clouds and she's floating through Earth. And then she somehow gets saved at the end. As the, as the, the one of the reviewers says, the, the 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 narrative doesn't really hold up to scrutiny, but the songs certainly do. Oh and there's a God. lot of sound effects. And um, Hello Mother Earth is incredible. And the jig, jig of life. Jig of life oh comes God. in with the chieftains and and it's this. You're in Ireland all of a sudden and. 
She really draws on 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 the old the Celtic folklore as well. I mean, the you know the the, the Fairport Convention and the, and the chieftain's influence always creeps in one way or another, and that and that comes from her mom's her side. Mom's, her mom's Irish and her yeah. dad's English, and she's got she's got an interest in sort of Celtic mythology and sort of pre-Christian, uh, you know, British Isles and stuff like that. She's she's Kate Bush. I mean, she does she does it. She does it well. I remember thinking one of the, at one point I was like, she's a little like a British Stevie Nicks. Uh, yeah, and yet. Huh. If Stevie Nicks were also Bjork, you know, like it's uh, right. It's endless. It's ever changing. I mean, she's always pushing herself. She does not rest on her laurels. I mean, we, we'll see. We we've just been through well, essentially three phases. You know, there's this this first phase. The dreaming is a total transitional shift, um, and uh, uh, Hounds of Love is her just na- I mean, top of her game, nailing it. And they say that it's the first at number one album in England from a British female solo artist. That doesn't mean the first female artist or the first. It's a little bit of a strange accolade, but she yeah, it's an right. extremely all of these ch- singles chart. And then she does the duet "Don't Give Up" with Peter, Peter Gabriel. Gabriel. And by the way, the great one of the great a couple different quotes about the Peter Gabriel sessions that she goes to and Daniel Lenoir, you know, who is a major producer, but he, this was his early days. He was producing. So with uh, Peter Gabriel. And he said that Kate was really down to earth, except for the fact that every guy in the room fell in love with her. I guess uh, Sinead O'Connor says that she loves Kate Bush. Cause she's the, he, she's the only person that Peter Gabriel tried to sleep with that, that, that turned him down, <laughs> that pushed him off, that like totally rebuffed really? him. That's great. And again, one of the reasons Kate Bush is insulated, I think, from some of the nastier aspects of this like male-dominated industry is that she doesn't need money. She doesn't have to right. go. Doesn't have to go tour. She doesn't have no. to debase She's herself. She's invested to in get, her art. I mean, she really is. She treasures it above all, and will fight for it. And. That's all she cares about. But she doesn't have to like debase herself to no. label executives or record DJs. She doesn't care about any of that stuff. No, I mean it seems like at this point EMI just kind of puts their takes their hands off. But it, it, the, I think the, but the backdrop to me that I found interesting was that it was partly because she had financial independence that allowed her space to say no to a lot of things that I think other women felt like they had to say yes to. And certainly the studio move is reflective of that as well. Well, it's got all the environmental things that we want, the right kind of sounding rooms, and we've got all the outboard equipment and the right kind of speakers and everything. Mm. It's uh, what we want, which is why we did it. <laughs> you say we all the time. It's, it's very much though a very solo sort of thing. I mean, you've produced the thing, you've written the thing. Um, even though you have other musicians playing on it, you're calling the shots, aren't you? I'm in control, but there's no way I could do it by myself. I rely on very good engineers and musicians and people around me to advise me. Yes, how do you keep tabs on whether you're losing track of reality, you know, whether you're getting too self-indulgent? You mean in context of an album? Yeah. I think you just have to rely on a voice inside you saying that it's getting better and everything that you do to it does make it better and not worse. To be up against a wall, up, up against a deadline where, you know, studio time is expensive, People need the boards. Somebody else is recording someplace else. She doesn't want that level of interference. And so she puts herself in a bubble out in the country and creates her studio that she's totally comfortable with, that she totally understands. And that supports her just like Del Palmer supports her, just like the Fairlight supports her. Um, Yeah. She's got everything she needs at this point. 
she's and she's just on top of the she's like everywhere in nineteen eighty six. Did you see the eighty six comic relief with Rowan Atkinson? I haven't seen the video of it. I, I've read about <laughs> it. It's pretty great. Um it's you know, he starts as this like cheesy lounge singer and then she kind of strolls up beside him and, and um and and does a duet, but it's all like puns, dirty puns. He looks pretty rich and I was down the so I charged him a fortune for a flying for crying out loud do I love you do I want you would I sacrifice my life to you if I could is the Pope Catholic is Luxembourg small and do those hairy bears I will say to people that if you haven't found some of the the Hounds of Love B-sides like Under the Ivy or Not This Time they're 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 incredible they're better than some of the tracks on the record for sure but just they wouldn't have fit but they they're worth seeking out every single one of them and she's very guarded about her material and her you know unfinished stuff but you get the sense given the amount of time she spent in the studio there's got to be oodles and oodles of unreleased stuff out there and some of it's made it onto youtube but not that much but so so next she retreats for another three years um and she starts making this album that becomes the sensual world yep which is the big it it she, it's her she says she does does want to channel a more feminine energy on this record and um, it, it, <laughs> I think she succeeds. She succeeds. Because really everything I've learned in the music industry about making records has been from men. And it occurred to me more in hindsight than at, at the time that a lot of what I was doing was very male influenced. And um, I just wanted to try and find a female energy for myself. Not that there's anything negative about male energy in music because uh, it's great, you know. Just um, was looking for a, a female approach, I guess. It's got VH1 vibes. It has Red Shoe Diaries vibes. Yeah. <laughs> not the Red Shoes, but Red Shoe Diaries. Yeah, yeah, not the Red Shoes. Uh, that, why is it terrible that that's completely combined in my mind? They, they, yeah. uh, this record is sort of known. The story is that she writes this entire song, the, begin, the, the title track, the sensual world mm -hmm. uh, around a speech that Molly Bloom gives a soliloquy in James Joyce's Ulysses and thinking that the words must be in the um, you know public domain and then she finds out they're not and then she doesn't get permission to use them but the track's like completely recorded and huh. so she's denied the words but then later on for director's cut in like 2011 they finally the estate does give her permission and she's able to do it and it sounds amazing it sounds both tracks are pretty great but um, the big discovery for the sensual world is she she somehow discovers these Bulgarian throat singers called the tr Trio Bulgarka. I first heard their music about three years ago when I was just finishing the last album through my brother Paddy, who has always been interested in, in ethnic music and uh, collected instruments since he was a kid, really. And he played me a tape 
and uh, I couldn't believe how beautiful it was. Um, I listened to it all the time and thought how lovely it would be if perhaps on the next album I'd be able to somehow work with them, somehow incorporate their music with my own. She, uh, she gets the trio Bulgarka uh, going, and you want, if you want to hear the trio Bulgarka, uh, they are on the song, the ama- they're on like three songs, but you really hear them at the beginning of one of probably my favorite song on here. It's called Rocket's Tale for Rocket. And then that song like erupts into a Dave Gilmore guitar solo. And it's about <laughs> it's about two lovers looking at the fireworks in the sky, and one of them wanting to be up there, and one of them not. And then one of them decides, "Oh, I do want to be up there." That's the sort of stuff she's writing about. Um, and then we've got deeper understanding, which is a uh, talk to us about that. <laughs> well, it's it's a uh, a sister song to Computer Lady. It's about a uh, a person that that basically has a relationship with their computer. It's the software provides a deeper understanding um, than this person is getting from the outside world and is pretty reflective of the world that we live in yeah, now. Yeah, it's pretty pre- prescient, shall we say. And, and I mean, emotionally, it, it's, it's a bit of a powerhouse. She, she, um, she uses a vocoder and, and uh, a, a chorus of, of uh, voices for um, the computer voice in in 89 but then on her uh, director's cut album that she does in the early teens uh, she uses her son's voice and and is able to to manipulate the voice and and so that it really sounds like sort of a a digital voice whereas this 89 version doesn't necessarily but uh, it's still it's still pretty gorgeous It's a, it's, I think it's a beautiful record. It's a record I feel like the more I listen to, the more it reveals itself to me. It's not as immediate as Hounds of Love. And I mean, none of her records are that immediate, to be honest with you. But um, and a friend of mine said today, I was telling him we were recording about Kate Bush. And he said, you know, I really respect Kate Bush, but there's just never a time when I come back at the end of the day and you think, you know what? I really want to listen to is some <laughs> Kate Bush because it's, it's challenging. And I think she, she knows that about her music. Yeah. Um, but it's also escapism. I mean, there's a the song on the sensual world called um, 
Heads Were Dancing, which is about a woman who has like a really charming night dancing with this stranger only to find out the next morning that it was Adolf Hitler. <laughs> how do you not? How do you not know? How do you not know? And she's like, I was dancing with the devil. And like the, the biographer says, admittedly a far-fetched <laughs> idea. For, for but that has uh, Mick Karn the, uh, uh, playing bass. Mick Karn is from Japan. So that there's definitely sort of an influence from that uh, that band a little bit. She, on she her. casts for songs. That's what she they say. She'll cast a different bass player or guitarist or piano player or for for each song. And I think it's uh, Dell is like a constant, but even he's not he's not playing bass on all these songs. It's a, right, right. Uh, you know, there's another. I love the song and they're reaching out, but the the song that's probably the most immortal song on the sensual world is the final one, which was originally recorded for "She's Having a Baby," the John Hughes movie. <laughs> that's right. Uh, it's <laughs> this woman's work, which is just. Um, it she wrote it specifically for a scene where he's waiting for the child to arrive, but. Um, it clearly is connected with a lot of people over the years. It's just, I'll just play the first few bars of it. It's a a beautiful, emotional song that's feels more confessional but is not really um yeah because she's writing from a character voice but so yeah so 93 is the red shoes and what i think is really i mean there's there's a lot of cool things that happen on this record but the visual uh companion that goes along with it which is essentially a, a short film i mean she's has directed uh like a lot of the a lot of the videos, right? Many of the videos that, that have come before this, but it, it, in the Red Shoes, she makes a movie called "The Line, the Cross, and the Curve" uh, to support the song. So it's basically a a, a short musical film, uh, and it's broken up um, into um, some of the singles uh, from the album. But it's it's pretty impressive her work as a, as a filmmaker. It's it's. It's sort of Lynchian. There's definitely the Terry Gilliam stuff going on, but um, and and it stars uh, Miranda Richardson, uh, Kate Bush, and Lindsey Kemp is in it, and it has sort of touches, of course, of the Red Shoes, the 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 Powell Pressburger film, but it's also got a little Wizard of Oz in there. Well, it, it is very much connected with the film. Um, I was lucky enough to meet Michael Powell, the director of the Red Shoes, before he died, and. Um, he was such a sweet man. He was really sweet. I thought one of Britain's best directors. And um, he had a very strong effect on me. He was a very sweet man. And uh, he seems to have popped up in two or three of the songs that are on the album. Kate, Kate's ambivalent about this work. She says uh, she's proud of four minutes of that 35-minute <laughs> film. And uh, that then she just called it a load of bollocks. But... I know there's some good moments in it. And the red shoes, you know, um, growing up going to CD stores, you'd find the red shoes in a lot of used bins. Yeah. So I was a little surprised by how much I really liked the red shoes. Um, I, You know what I like? I, I love that she kicks it off with Rubber Band Girl. It's There's this playful, buoyant um, feel to that song that you don't often get. But when she does it, you're like, God damn, she can do that. 
Why? Apparently, she said I don't want. I didn't want it to be a challenge. Oh, I to do really? Something light. Yeah. Play, play, play. Rubber band girl. That actually does well in the States. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, there are a few records of hers that don't even come out in the States. And then Hounds of Love yeah. does okay. And so yeah. Central World comes out. Um, but, you know, the song that I just blew me away, and mm-hmm. uh, which I was not expecting, and was is the song Lily. Which is, oh, really? Which is about, like, she's, I guess she's, at this point, you know, she's very interested in spirituality. And she's visiting some lady named Lily Cornford, who's a healer, like a color therapy healer who believes in angels, angel, angelology, I forget what the exact, heliology or whatever it's called. And um, she helps Kate at some point in her life because Kate's mother is, has been diagnosed with cancer. And uh, I think she's, I, I believe she's died at this point. And um, the song, she says, Lily, I don't feel safe. I feel like life has blown a hole, a big hole in me. video actually features this old lady this old english lady lily cornford like talking to her oh that that's who that is <laughs> it's actually her oh wow um i love that song um can i read you a quote that a friend of mine who's a in a, a poet and uh, an enormous uh, um kate bush fan wrote to me yeah he says he one of the things he loves about her is just nothing is off limits uh, for Kate Bush. If she wants to write a song about you know having sex with a snowman, she will. If she wants <laughs> she to write will. about um, uh, laundry machine, she will. He says Kate Bush is about ecstatic states. She's interested in extremities of experience, even when the experience is mundane. She's not interested in documenting with dispassionate distance what we consider artful. Um, she's interested in characters who are pushed beyond measured reactions and specifically in inhabiting the moment where that control is surrendered. She wants to, she isn't writing about the circle of fire. She's in it. Uh, that song isn't about the circle of fire. She's in the circle. Lily isn't about protection spells. It is one. The songs are so continually surprising because they aren't willing to allow us the distance either. When I listen to her, I don't feel allowed to simply witness extremity, but to succumb to it, to give myself permission to actually feel what someone else is feeling. It makes them so fun to play because it's a chance to inhabit these modes of thinking a little more directly. 
Yeah, I agree. Her themes and her stories are about teetering on the edge, whether it's uh, the edge of ecstasy or the edge of madness. It's 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 walking the line of 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 feeling those those feeling both sides mm-hmm. at once, and that's sort of the joy of the human experience. I feel like that's why that first album hit me so hard. I really felt like a wave was coming over me listening, listening to that first album. So is there, I mean, um, and it's, it was, so it was a real revelation for you. It was one of those, it was ton of bricks type moments. It was. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I just drank it in and because it, it, it just kept coming every song one after the other, as you said, everyone is different and yet, emotionally they're the same or they sort of hit me in the in in the right spot the for me a lot of it has to do with the um the supernatural and 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 all of the all of that stuff that she's she's playing with and the lore i i just tend to to love that stuff yeah me too and so it's it's, very effective she's like it's a it's a it's a very interesting brew yeah and that's why a little bit I, I I tap out with the the late '80s and and '90s stuff, um, because it's not as as she's she's just doing something else. Yeah, and it, it and it's it's still great. It's just not that stuff. So I, well, someone said that there's a real slackening of tension after Hounds of Love, a real slackening of tension, and because she's older, you know, she's turned thirty, and she's and at this point, you know, um, after red shoes uh her mother has died her guitar player has died and and then she ends up uh, getting her and Dell break up and she she finds a, a new man and they end up having a child but no one really knows this she goes she she does kind of become reclusive and and there's no new record until 2005 when when ariel uh comes out i mean she's seen occasionally but um She's Ariel comes out and it's a two disc set. When I'm making an album, it becomes my life. There's nothing else I do except to take weekends out in order to reorganize my home. But uh, it's 12 hours a day, five days a week until the thing's finished. And writing is something I do in the studio now. So everything is within the studio environment. It's quite intense. Uh, Red Shoes is 93 and Ariel is, is 2005. So, so the weight for fans is is too long and so by the by the time that it arrives the fanfare that is there for her is is massive i I think that um you know her all her old album her whole catalog sort of gets a a resurgence as a result of ariel arriving um ariel Is fantastic. I, I've I've got to play uh, a little bit of that, where um, she she basically has a dialogue with some birds and they crack her up. That's what happens in this song. It's so good.
And then she drops out of the blue in one year in 2011. She drops both director's cut and 50 words for snow. And 50 words for snow right. is like eight tracks. Like each song is really long. Uh, Elton John features on it. Um, that has Misty, the one that you were talking about where uh, the video is a, a snowman arrives, com- comes through her window and she makes love to a snowman and he melts in her hands. <laughs> There's a song in there called Wild Man, which I think is great. It's got, you have to, you have to it's really is cool. Uh, Kate Bush songs. I mean, these, these take some work. Director's Cut is her re-recording basically stuff from a sensual world, the sensual world and uh, Red Shoes because she had done those digitally, especially the Red Shoes. And the sound on the Red Shoes is very tinny. It's very dated sounding. And so she re-records those basically. And, yeah. um, we don't want to forget that on Red Shoes, she uh, she does a song with Prince. Oh, Why Should I Love I You? I forgot. I love that song. I'm just going to say, yeah. she and Prince, uh, they, she, she adores Prince, and they, she sends him a song, and like three months later, he sends it back, and he's completely cut it up, rewritten it, and like, uh, or uh, put a gazillion guitars on there and synthesizers and backup vocals. It's great. And then they spend like two years stripping it back down and keeping stuff there, and all of the reviews of the song say it's not that great. I think it's phenomenal. You know what? It though? sounds like it's, a Prince song. It well, it sounds like a 1988 Prince song, not a 1993 Prince song, and maybe that's what the issue is. It's like Batman Prince, it's, which I love. Which is great, Prince. I mean, at this point, it all sounds great. So uh, then there's the surprise, right? Yeah, totally. Out of the blue in 2014, after 35 years away from the stage, she she puts on something called Before the Dawn, 22 or 20 dates in London um, of, a, of a live show, of a really theatrical production. And there's, a, there's an audio document of it. They, everyone thought there was going to be a DVD of it, but I guess she's, she's not happy with whatever the footage was. Um, but the pictures, if you look at online for the pictures from Before the Dawn, it was very Gilliam-esque and wild. And I got to see some of it. One of our uh, Instagram friends, Russ Turk, sent us a, uh, a video file of it, and I will send it to you. And it is, um, you really can understand the power of what it must have been like to be in the audience during this show. If, if you're, a, you know, I saw um, like a CNN piece about it um, where, you know, it sold out in 15 minutes. It's, it was 22 shows at the Hammersmith Odeon, which I think is where the last tour Stop. People from all over the world, like all over the world. In, there's in tears. There's, right. There's there's the the thing that really got me was there's a guy who's from Poland and he basically said, you know, I I heard these songs in communist Poland, and you know they transported me to other worlds, and how much they meant to him. And then here in 2014, he gets the opportunity to see his one of his heroes and she puts on a show that is it's totally transportative i think there's an awful lot of uh, sympathetic 
magic almost that goes on in art where people do want to be something other than what they are. More and more I think this is kind of the special thing about music, that it's not to do with language that is connected with words, it's to do with almost a sort of subconscious language that people understand, that sounds can create feelings in other people. Um, you can actually say something to someone without words by using shapes of sounds and it seems like a totally fascinating thing to me and uh, I mean music is just so it's mind-boggling isn't it don't you think so it's 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 sort of a handful of hits at the beginning she does Lily and ends with um uh she, what's it called man on the mountain I know that she or, king of the mountain she she opens of the with Lily though she opens with Lily because she says that it's sort of a group prayer and she sort of wants everybody to, to be on the, the same page. Oh, and then it is. Um, yeah. And then uh, Ninth Wave begins the story aspect. And on screen, there's a video of her in the water. So she's that she's is the, available. The, the, you the can woman see that. In, That's the only yeah. thing I've seen. Sorry. And then what happens on the stage is the dream aspect of what's happening in her mind as she's she's in this horrible what what she describes as basically the most terrifying thing that could ever happen to somebody which is being lost at sea by yourself at night and at <laughs> night right because it's before the dawn hence the title um so everything that that happens on stage is is sort of is mystical but it's 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 really wonderful like i i've done a lot of theater and to the point where I, I'm, I've exhausted myself long ago of like, I don't need to, I'm, I'm good. I'm good on the theater front. But watching this, I was like, oh man, that's, I forgot. This is the wonderful thing about the, the, the live audience and, um, and sort of you can hear a pin drop and, and the sort of the, the, the tickles of laughter that, that happen as, you know, cause there's scripted elements as well. I mean, it's a real story, but then it's, it's the Kate Bush world. It's, it's, it's really it must've been something. Wow. i maybe, maybe one day we will get to see like a professionally produced thing of it. Cause I, I love the, the, the audio document of it's fantastic. And that's sort of the last thing she remastered all of her records. And I, I get the sense she's, she's, she's continues to record you, you, Read interviews with her. Yeah, and she she talks about like not, you know no, no somebody asked her to it in the same way. Yeah, and and they uh, somebody asked her about um, before the dawn um, if she had any regrets about not doing it um, before then, you know, and she said she says no. Essentially, like it was the right thing at the right time. I mean, it's so meaningful not only to her to to have the opportunity opportunity to do all her work in this manner in this live format but also to the audience and that's kind of enough she appreciates what it what it was she doesn't need to you know kill it yeah wow everyone was so surprised too no one could believe it because she there was she had talked about touring after the red shoes and then it just never happened and i think that they say the only person that could ever that have, could ever convince her to do anything on stage again was her son birdie yeah and uh and he's part he's of it part of it so should we do our our top uh, our top five? Yeah, I just want to do one. Um, I I was listening to an interview with her today, um, an old one, uh, and she said something that it's really just so it's such a simple idea, but man, it just floored me. Uh, and she says this: I 
uh, I think anyone that has any kind of creative outlet is uneasy. And that's what makes them need to express themselves. I think all human beings are uneasy on some level. And how can you not be when we don't really know what we're doing here and what we're meant to do with it? I was kind of like, man, wow, that's, that's, that's perfect. It's, it's sort of a, an, an inability to, to, uh, cope <laughs> that you're forced into other means of, of expressing yourself and, and, and hence creativity. Wow. And hence the like the wonderful worlds that that she creates. Oh, you know, one other thing that I that stuck with me was Elton John, who uh, is, he says that "Don't Give Up" um, the song saved his life when he was at his bottom of his alcoholism. But he said that uh, when he got uh, married or civil partnership, I forget what it to his current to his husband in two thousand and two, um, mm-hmm. the room was full of famous people, and Kate Bush showed up. And like everyone, it was all these really famous people, but everyone was freaking out because Kate Bush was there. And like she hadn't been seen in public for 12 years or something like that. And and she, they, they people kept asking Elton John if they could meet Kate Bush because she was like, is that Kate Bush? Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. Yeah, right. And then, then there's a story of Kate Bush meeting the queen and asking for her like her autograph or something like that. So she's... She's just... Uh, she's uh, kind of too good for this world a little bit. Um, kind of, yeah. And... Uh, who knows if the story's over, but I think that a lot of it, um, I'm just so glad we've, we've been given to, to, to delve into it so deeply. But what? Absolutely. That's the thing. It feels so satisfying at this point. You know, she's really created an, an end point for, for everything that she's done. And if she does more, fantastic. But if she hasn't, man, it's, it's awesome. She's had very little constraint on her creativity, and that's a blessing and a curse. Um, but in this case, it's mostly been a blessing. But yeah. Um, I don't know. What are your, what are your, if you have to boil it down to five songs. What, what, Shit, man. I, this is I, hard. I, I tried. Did you do five? You can fudge it. I've got five and then another five. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it in uh, uh, three phases. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you my favorite songs in, you know, the first phase, which is um, uh, the first three albums. Uh saxophone song i love because it had it instantly took me to that court and spark that joni mitchell uh feel that i love so much uh the man with the child the man with the child in his eyes uh is is wonderful uh lamore looks something like you i love hammer horror and the wedding list in that first block Ooh, okay that's a great it's a great block and then um second block uh basically the 80s stuff night of the swallow which has that um that's off the dreaming and and has heavy fairlight um uh 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 themes going on but also it's got the chieftains um and i like that contrast uh suspended in gaffa hounds of love cloud busting and jig of life golly (laughs) <laughs> I'm stealing all your songs. No, no you're not actually. You're not. But um Okay. And then um 90s just deeper understanding and rubber band girl and then 2000s Ariel and Snowed in at Wheeler Street. 
I love the drama of Snowden at Wheeler Street, which is the duet with Elton John. I just love the Elton John, you know, that he just rolls in with his Elton John voice and it's so great. But it's also this really touching story about these two lovers that sort of can't seem to make it worse, make it work across like lifetimes. They keep, it, it keeps not working out. Haven't I seen you before? <laughs> you know that kind of. He stuff. said it's to, he it's said it was really hard to record. He said Kate Bush songs really? are not easy, and they're not. There's all these he stories of like job. people being like, "What time is this? Like eleven nine? What time signature is this, Kate?" <laughs> okay, so I'll do my my top five, and then my second five, and they're not in any particular order. But I had just I just went from the my gut. Uh, I, like I and dream of sheep. I think is a, uh, a perfect slice of Kate Bush, and it's transcendent. It's just sort of transcendent. Um, the 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 live version from Before the Dawn of Lily. I think I I was oh. trying to figure out which is the version of Lily I like the best, the one on Director's Cut or the one on Red Shoes. And then I listened to the live one. And it's like I combined what I like about both of them. It sounds huge. Yeah. Um, King of the Mountain from Ariel. That song's just yep. been stuck in my head for days, and I think it's just fabulous. Um, Bre- Have you seen the video, by yes, the way? Yes, and it's a sh- of Elvis's jumpsuit like flying across the landscape. I mean, you got to hand it to her on these videos. They're they're you can't uh, you can't dig into Kate Bush without watching the videos. No, there are some. It's essential. It's essential viewing. Yes, and, and her her career spans from like really low five videos to like really high five videos. Yeah. Um, breathing off of Never yep. Forever, which has that that Pink Floyd vibe, which I dig so much. Then uh, Wuthering Heights, but the 1986 version. Ha ha ha! She re-recorded <laughs> it for is her is her taste for the director's cut is a dry. She has only done one greatest hits record, which is like a singles collection she put out in 1986. Had an extra single on it with a video that had Hugh Laurie and uh, in it. Um, called experiment yeah. four which is okay, which is a song about it it's kind of a, song, a stranger things yeah uh, it's about us it's a it's a song about government creating a song to kill people um <laughs> and but the 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 she re-recorded wuthering heights um with just her slightly more mature voice and uh a better backing i mean some would say it's sacrilege but kate bush is one of the people that when she re-records these songs they're somehow better like directors cut yeah. most people agree that the re-recordings are better but i love that yeah. version it's only on youtube right now that i can find um so that's my initial top five my second top five would be running up that hill i just it's it it works on every it's so good uh rocket's tale of the central world that starts with mm-hmm. the bulgarians and ends with david gilmour um, sat in your lap, um, just mm-hmm. uh, which I think is good. I w- d- also included uh, "Night of the Swallow" off the Dreaming, and then why? Oh, then yeah. why should I love you? I just think it's a fun tune that reminds me of everything I like about the '80s, even though it was released in 1993. Pr- Prince and Kate Bush coming together. I don't care if people think it's not successful. Just the two of them in the same song is is enough for me. So it really is. Yeah. You know, I thought you were gonna. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to pick as one of your songs the Alan Partridge uh, Kate Bush medley that you sent me. Oh my gosh, that's a thing of incredible beauty. Talking about another national treasure. If I only could, I'll make a deal with God. I'll get him to swap off like says. I'm running up that road. I'm running up that hill. No problem. Rolling the ball. 
simple <laughs> it's so simple it's such a cheap bit of comedy but it is so perfect oh just doing her absurdist lyrics in uh, an alan partridge voice just it slays me it's it might be the best thing i've ever and seen because of her dramatic flair she really opens herself up to parody like a lot and so there's been a lot of parodies of kate bush but she's played along with it and she seems to have a great sense of humor about it she's not Wagging her finger at any of these people, but if you want the, the top of the the top of the game is definitely That's top of the heap. Coogan doing Alan, Alan Partridge, Partridge doing a medley Holy that miracle. he dances to as well. Oh my! God. Oh wow! wow. <laughs> the man with the child in his eyes. <laughs> um, so I I saw a clip of the video. The first I guess there's two videos for Don't Give Up, mm-hmm. and uh, the the first one is. <laughs> It's essentially it's a hugathon. Yeah, it's like, it's like I mean, a... it's it's Peter Gabriel and K- Kate Bush in an embrace for six minutes, and I thought, let me get a look at this. This is going to be hilarious, and I was crying by the end, literally. I mean, that's the song that like, saved Elton John. So it's about the forgotten men uh, of the Depression, but man, I mean, it is a song for our time right now, wow. more than anything, and I. I and I had never, I, I I guess I said this before. I had I I never loved that song, but man, today I watched it and it just hit me. It hit me hard. Wow, it's a good song. It's a great song. <laughs> Should we send it out? On Definitely. Don't give up, I know you can make it 
Place where we belong. 